Hey, welcome to our series, Problem of God, where we're answering big questions about faith. Is God real? Is Jesus the Son of God? Is the Bible really God's word? We hope you'll join us for each and every one of these discussions as we continue traveling through Acts. Before you log off, don't forget to fill out that connection card. You can do it at branchlife.church and stay through the end of the talk today where I've got some more important information for you. We hope that this series helps answer some of life's big questions. And thanks again for joining us for The Problem of God. Good morning. So glad you guys made it this morning. You dodged the raindrops. I, I, I don't know what rain does, uh, but I just have a sneaky suspicion that I have to say a particularly good morning to everyone who's here and everyone who's watching online, right? We just a lot of people see rain and they're like, you know what? I'm going to go online today. And I, I get it. I get how that works. Uh, but you guys came out and you're here. It is like he just brought a pillow to the platform. Like, is it, is it nap day? Like, are we all like looking forward to Sunday afternoon naps a little bit more this morning? Today we're going to be talking about the, uh, the problem of sleeping through church, all right? So that's going to be a conversation that we're going to have today. Uh, it is coming up, you know, and it's, uh, we're in the book of Acts, so just wait for it. And uh, I'll bring the pillow back at the due time. As we're traveling through the book of Acts, we're in the series called The Problem of God. We're answering important questions that skeptics ask, and so we're going to jump right in today with the topic, the question of the day, uh, are miracles real? So if there is such a thing as miracles, how do we know? Are they real? What do we do about it? Acts chapter 16, if you have your Bibles, or if you are using one of your journals, we're going to start in pay, on page 84 in our Acts journals. Now today, uh, and through this series, you may have noticed, we're going chronologically through Acts, but we are jumping ahead, and today we're jumping ahead and we're grabbing a couple stories uh, that we'll pass by later on uh, as we go through this study. So get ready to jump. We're going to jump to two passages. So if you are a note taker and you're like, well, where do I take my notes? Take them on page 83 is where you want to put them down, and then you can grab your other Bible if you want, and you can jump ahead there, or we're going to be in Acts through most of today uh, so that's, that's what you will need this morning. And God said, let there be light. <laughs> I am not God, so I am not the one that can do miracles, and that's part of the point today uh, that we'll be learning about. So do you believe in miracles? Well, 79% of Americans do believe in miracles, thank you God, and, and uh, they believe that there are things that... that I feel like I need to drop to my knees to be like, God is in this place. Yeah, let's sing some more. The Holy Spirit is amongst us today. And if, you're, if you are the uh, 21% who don't believe in miracles, you're like, no, that's the light technician up in the back booth that's doing all of those things. 
Uh, 79% of uh, Americans believe in miracles. There's a little break up here if you want to grab this graphic off of our online notes section in the YouTube channel when it's downloaded. That'll show you uh, just a bunch of stats about what that means. But if you're thinking about it in terms of numbers, this is one of the highest percentages that we've shown so far as far as a belief. Like, Just the belief that Jesus rose from the dead last week, that was 60%, I think 61 or 62%. More people than that believe in the possibility or believe that miracles happen. They believe they're possible. They believe they they are happening. They either agree or strongly agree with that. It's It's not an uncommon belief, in other words, to hold to the fact that miracles happen. Now, uh, back in what they're calling today old science, there was a push, theologically, logically, rationally, to say that miracles don't exist because old science, which is kind of known as naturalism, held to this uh, belief or this foundation or this presumption that if you can't see it, if you can't test it, if you can't repeat it, right, the hypothesis, then you go through the scientific method, and that's, that's the things that you can see and prove. Those are the only things that are real. Those are the only things that exist. We are who we are, and uh, we are all we are, and that kind of what naturalism teaches, and so in the higher academic places where people with much smarter IQs than I have would have these debates, and they would have these philosophies and, and arguments and discussions, they would, they would kind of presuppose no, there is no such thing as miracles, and in order to believe in miracles, you would sort of have to prove it. That's, that's really different than any time or any place in history. Now, we're into kind of a new science, and new science is saying there's a lot more possible that we can see, taste, uh, prove, and run through the scientific method, and a lot of that's connected to quantum physics and quantum theory and the quantum universe, right, and Marvel. I don't know if those are related, but it's, it's all kind of the same discussion, and people are saying, no, you know, there's, there's probably more to it than we can actually rationally put into a, a, a beaker or observe, observe on a videotape and repeat the process over and over again. But when when C.S. Lewis said back in his generation this quote, miracles and facts do not make the, break the natural law, he was regarded as a scientific heretic. The science community rejected this claim outright. And here's, here's an Oxford professor right at the height of his profession and at the pinnacle of the citadel of academics, right? And he steps out onto a limb scientifically speaking, going from someone who was an atheist, someone who was a naturalist, to now someone who's saying, no, I think miracles are possible. Not only do I think they're possible, I don't think they, they break the natural law at all. Now, new science is embracing Lewis, not from a, a biblical standpoint, from a scientific standpoint, that this would, in fact, be a true and rational statement. Well, how can we rationalize this idea that miracles are true and real if they're not repeatable, if they're not within the bounds of nature, if they're outside of ourselves? Well, one simple way to think about it is what about the one in a million chance? So how can we, how can we, why can we believe that miracles are rational? Well, one of millions. Do you know that there are millions and millions and millions and millions of claims of miracles out there? It's not hard to find people that claim to have participated in, witnessed, experienced, or know someone who has a miracle of some kind in some way, shape, or form. As a matter of fact, if you start reading through this thing called the Bible, 
starting in the very beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Something was made out of nothing. How do we explain that? That's miraculous. So the Bible starts with miracles. The Bible then ends with miracles. And all through these pages, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands of claims of miracles. In order for miracles to be true, in order for them to be a reality, in order for us to logically jump to this conclusion that miracles are a thing that we need to deal with, how many of those claims out of the millions have to be true? Well, just one. If one person is right, if one person actually experienced a true miracle, something that superseded the laws of nature, well then that makes miracles rational. And what's more rational? Is it more rational to believe out of these millions of claims at least one of them is true, or is it more rational to believe that out of these millions of claims that none of them are true? And so to believe in miracles, like mathematically, you got to say just the overwhelming testimony of this stuff happening out there, something's got to give. Now, there are two extremes when we talk with miracles, and I just want to start with this up front. Extreme number one on one side is seeing miracles everywhere. Have you ever met one of these folks? Everything's a miracle. Oh, look at that beautiful sunrise. Miracle, right? My coffee's just right. Miracle. Yeah, happened, happened. I sneezed, but I'm not sneezing again. Miracle. Yeah, and we go, people go through their days and they start claiming miracles everywhere they go. They're hearing voices, they're, they're seeing the spectacular, and for some, time, so, some of these people, you look at them and you're like, how come you're a miracle magnet and I'm not, right? Like, how, how does this happen? You got to be careful when you start claiming that everything is a miracle. On the other side, the other extreme is saying that there is no such thing as miracles, no wow, no how, no way. And in a moment, we're going to talk to you about the importance of the belief in miracles as it's connected to Christianity, and it's extremely important. But we can't live in the extremes. We need to have a biblical understanding of the miraculous. And listen, if you're not getting a biblical understanding of the miraculous from Scripture, from church, from a trusted source that that believes in God and believes in the Word of God, then you're going to get a theology of miracles from somewhere. Somebody is going to teach you about the miraculous. Someone is going to give you an argument about how to deal with this unexplained stuff. Someone's going to start pouring into you about the supernatural. But the problem is it will not be correct. And so the many voices that are trying to explain the miraculous out there, the voice that we want to listen to today is the voice of God through Scripture. And so Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts were starting to travel around the known world and they were spreading the message of Christianity. They were spreading the news of the gospel, which simply said everything that was predicted in the Old Testament is true. The coming Messiah is here in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He did die on the cross and here's the miracle. He rose again three days later. He started telling everyone that they would meet that you need to stop believing what you're believing and start believing in Jesus. Massive, massive claim, right? So the skeptics' questions began to be asked, and this next, this next verse starts showing us a little bit about how the miraculous plays into our testimony of the gospel. So go to Acts chapter 16, nope, nope, Acts chapter 14. And we're going to ask the question today, what do miracles prove? 
Acts chapter 14 is where we're going to start, put a thumb in Acts chapter 16, and then we're going to, by the end, be in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 14, we remember as we traveled through the end of 13 last week that Paul and Barnabas left the town they were in. They were persecuted out of it. Many Jews, many Gentiles, many Greeks were coming to know the Lord as they were in this island of Cyprus. They're traveling from town to town, spreading the news of the gospel, and they leave to go to a town called Iconium in chapter 14, verse 1. Now in Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. Remember, Paul had sway in the synagogue. And they spoke in such a way that great numbers of both Jews and Greeks believed. Let me just nudge you for a second. When's the last time you spoke in a great way about God? When's the last time you spoke in a great way about your faith? When's the last time you spoke in a great way about Jesus and what he means to you? When you speak in a great way about God, people come to Jesus. They were there speaking about God in verse 2, but the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against their brothers. So verse 3, so they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, but there was this poisoning going on, right? And the words were being confused and manipulated and turned. That's why verse 3 switches gears. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who, the Lord, mind you, bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. Now, if you were reading real quickly for your Bible reading for the day and you read through that and you're going through it, you would very easily read this passage and go, they were speaking boldly, they did signs and wonders, some agreed, they didn't agree, and blah, 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 blah. Let me just pause for a moment and say, Sign and, signs and wonders, what? Like, what just happened? This is the testimony that we have from Luke that when Paul and Barnabas were speaking, they also were granted by the Lord permission. They were granted the ability. They were granted the grace to be able to themselves produce signs and wonders. Now, in Scripture, there are seasons where miracles and the miraculous seem to be happening all over the place. And there are seasons in Scripture and in our timeline of the world where it's silent, where there's not a lot of the miraculous happening. Obviously, at the creation of the world, tons of miraculous stuff happening. Tons of stories about supernatural intervention. Tons of stuff going above the natural law. So you have the creation of the world. You have the seven days of creation. You have the story of Adam and Eve. You have the flood. You have all the stuff that's happening in the very beginning of the Bible. Miraculous, crazy, unbelievable. But then there's periods like even in time where it's sort of like the dark ages. And you have the miraculous, but then for hundreds and thousands of years, there's nothing and so like between the testaments is one of those times. You have all the prophets and all the, uh, you have the story of Israel and then all the prophets that are happening. And then there's a long period of time between the testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And then finally, where it's kind of like dead, there's not much happening. And then finally, supernaturally, here comes another season of the miraculous where it's crazy and all, all, all kinds of stuff happens. And that's all connected to the birth of Jesus. Here's a miraculous claim for you. A virgin gets pregnant. That's got to be outside the laws of nature. Yeah, it is, right? And so with some of this miraculous angels being seen, now here comes Jesus. Jesus lives on this earth, and he starts in three years. Jesus is responsible for well over 30 miracles that we know of. The book of John tells us he did more than that. 
So he was averaging, if he, if he had his, his teaching ministry, his miraculous season was about three years of his life. He did 30 miracles, right? In that three years that we know of, he was averaging a little less than one miracle a month. What are you going to do this month, Jesus? I'm going to walk on water. I'm going to bring Peter with me this time. What about this month? I'm going to calm the storm. What, what about this month? I'm going to change water into wine. Thank you very much, right? What, what about this? And, and he would heal the blind man, cause the lame to walk. And he was, he was constantly involved in the miraculous. The season directly after Jesus' ascension, his resurrection and his ascension, which is the season marked for us by the book of Acts, is a continuation of one of these miraculous periods where God is using the miraculous to start something. In Genesis, he's starting the, wor- the, the story of the world, right? Through the, early book, through the early books of the Bible, he's starting with his people, the people of Israel, and he's got this season, this plan, this age that he's, he's kicking off, he's, he's instituting. With the, with the birth and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, we're starting now this New Testament age, this brand new age, and the apostles were assigned the assignment of starting this thing called the church, the church age, which is also known as the last days. And so in these last days, in the beginning of this church age, as we were getting the New Testament delivered to us, literally delivered to us, there was still miraculous that was happening through the apostles. They were given this permission to to grant miracles, right, through requesting God's presence in a supernatural way. And so Paul and Barnabas, as a part of this age, as a part of this inauguration of these last days, We're doing signs and wonders to confirm the message that was not yet written down for us in Scripture, the message that God is alive, that Jesus is the Son of God who died and rose again for you, and that salvation comes by faith and grace in Christ alone. And our problem of sin, which he talks about last week, is only solved through this gospel. So to show their power, they did these things called signs and wonders. Now look what happens in verse 8. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth. He had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, seeing that, his, seeing that he had faith to be made well. He said in a loud voice, stand up on your feet. And he, the lame man, sprung up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul had done, what Paul had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Here's the problem with getting granted the ability or getting granted this permission by God to be involved in the miraculous. People are going to confuse you for God. And so now Paul and Barnabas were involved in the miraculous. It happened right in front of everyone's eyes. This man who they knew forever, he wasn't a scammer, he wasn't a liar, he wasn't a plant, he wasn't a fake. He was lame from birth, he could never walk. All of a sudden is now walking. Well, how do you explain that? And they said, we know, Paul and Barnabas are gods. And they assigned for them names. This is fantastic. Did you know that Zeus and Hermes are in the Bible? In verse 12, Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes. And Paul, uh, Barnabas looks at Paul and says, yeah, man, I'm Zeus. 
right? Like, you're just little Hermes, yeah? Like, what's your problem, Paul? Like, I don't know, like, Zeus for, or Zeus, Barnabas for the rest of his life were like, they thought I was Zeus. Like, like the Greek, this, this was the belief system of the Greeks that they were witnessing to. They believed in the pantheon of gods. They believed in the Greek gods. They believed in Mount Olympus. They believed in Zeus. They believed in Hermes. And Hermes was the messenger of the gods. And Paul was the bold speaker. And so obviously Paul was Hermes and the power behind Paul, and I love this, I, this is why Barnabas was my favorite guy in the Bible, is Barnabas, the, the strong silent type just holding the thunderbolt in the background. And so they, they said, you must be Zeus and you must be Hermes. And because, because they're the chief speakers, and then, then they went to the temples where they had the temple for Zeus and the temple, and these priests come out, right, and I'm summarizing, and they bring sacrifices because they think Zeus has come to earth. And so they're going to sacrifice to Zeus. And what Paul says and Barnabas says in verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of like nature with you and we bring to you the good news the gospel that you should turn from these vain things the Zeusy things and the Hermes things and you should you should turn to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the seas that are all and all that's in them in the past generations he allowed all nations to walk in their ways yet he did not leave himself without witnesses for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons to satisfy your hearts with, with food and gladness. And even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. What's the first thing that miracles prove? The first thing that miracles prove is that God is alive and he alone is worthy of worship. God is alive and he alone is worthy of worship. You see, in this passage, they pointed to Paul and Barnabas as the ones to be worshipped because they were the conduits of God's grace in that age. But Paul and Barnabas said, no, no, you should turn from these vain things and start to serve a living God. When angels came down and they're spectacular, people would fall down to worship the angels. The angels would reject their worship and say, don't worship me. I want, to, I, want me I want my presence to point you to something greater than myself, and that is the God of the universe. When God does the miraculous, the reason the miraculous is happening is so that he can prove he is above nature. That he is above the laws of nature that mankind has tried to identify. That he supersedes any natural ability that we're aware of. That God is alive and well. And every now and then, we need a little bit of a shock to remember that. We need a little bit of, of God's power and God's presence to be reminded that God is alive and well and that he's worthy of our worship because what we start doing is we start worshiping vain things. We start putting our minds, our thoughts, our rationale above God. 
and we start putting things before God and we start abandoning the way of God and, and it happens so easily and it happens in every culture and every generation. And here was a generation of people who were spending times in temples built for Zeus and Hermes. They were building a pantheons of gods to try to explain the miraculous that was happening around them. And these, these false gods were getting in the way of belief in the one true God. And before you start pointing your finger at them, you need to remind yourself and ask yourself this question, what am I worshiping in place of God? What holds more awe in my life than the awesome God of the universe? What do I spend my time in? Where, where does my finances go? What are my in, emotions invested in? And am I somebody that's worshiping the gods of this world in front of the God of the universe? You know, our gods today have different names. There's not a lot of people that go around believing in Zeus and Hermes, but they might believe in an Allah. They might believe in an Allah. They might follow a pope. They might think a Buddha is the representation of God here on earth. They might get drawn into false religions and false systemologies and ideologies and start trying to explain the supernatural with man-made inventions and man-made ideas. And some people might abandon religion altogether and they start, will say things like, no, none of that's true. There can't be a God. I am the God of me. I am the boss of me. I am the one that I trust more than anything else in this world. And they start worshiping the God of self. And every now and then, something happens that's inexplainable, that supersedes the laws of nature, and we have to say to ourselves, maybe, maybe, just maybe there is a God. And there's two things that I think turn more people away from atheism and naturalism than anything else in this world. Number one is the birth of a baby. A couple weeks ago, as I was talking about the problem of God, we, we, I mentioned this, and it's true, and I've heard testimony after testimony of this. People who did not believe in the reality of God would see life for the first time, life come from them. They would have a baby that was born. And for everyone that's a parent here, you understand this feeling in this moment. When that baby is born and you're standing there like on, in the commercial on the red spot going, oh, now what? You're holding something miraculous. And there's, there's something absolutely different with having a baby, a boy or girl being born into this world that's, that's very, very different from an animal's birth or a new flower popping up. There's something that separates children, there's something that separates humans from the rest of creation. And what's miraculous, and what happens over and over again, it becomes so common to us that we lose the miraculous in it, is that this little child has life. Not just the mechanics of life, not just the air that fills its lungs and, and the mind that works and can reason. Not just the eyes that are able to see spectacular color. Not the, the, the words that are able to form and be brought out. The feet that move us across the plains of this earth. But they have life. They have a will. They have emotion. There's a soul. There's personality involved. There's likes and dislikes and all of it is brought together in some miraculous way and is implanted inside of each and every human being something that can only be the likeness of God. And when you hold this new baby, right, there's nothing more powerful, in my opinion, that argues for the existence of God than new life. And atheist after atheist will say there's got to be something more. The second miracle that I think turns a lot of atheists, naturalists, towards a, a belief in God is the weather. All y'all 
all y'all pray about the weather. Every single one of you. I don't know if I've ever met a person that didn't pray about the weather. We pray about the weather all the time. We talk to God about the weather every day. Like it becomes this massive spiritual conversation about the weather. I am involved in weddings all the time. And every time I have a young couple come to me and say, we're planning an outdoor wedding, I'm going to be like, this is going to be one of the most spiritual times of your life. (laughs) Your belief in God is going to grow exponentially. And they're going to get so obsessed about weather that they're not going to be one of those people that watches the weather channel or gets the weather app. Oh, no, no, that's made for the masses. We're going to go to the dark weather web, right? And there's these places where you weather people go and you kind of are watching graphs and arrows and things and you're predicting. And so young couples, they're going to get married in two years and they're going to be looking in the dark web for the weather two years from now right? And they're going to say, hey, this is what the weather's going to be. This is how we need to plan, right? This has got to be a certain degree. And then, and then as it gets closer and closer and closer, right? Listen, I don't, I still watch the 10, 7, 3-day thing. They don't get it right. It doesn't happen. Like, they're wrong most of the time, most of the time. And yet, we plan our lives around these weather folks' predictions, and then when we realize that the weather people are wrong, guess where we turn? God, help me with the weather. Make this better today, right? Take the rain away. You know, give us sunshine because he cares about your family picnic that was planned for two years. And, and, and please, Lord, don't let this hurricane hit my town. The town over there is fine, but mine is not. I want it to jump over my house and hit my neighbor's house. And the weather causes more people to believe in God. When you're in Hurricane Alley, when it's raining and the lights go out, oh, God, I know you're here somewhere, right? And then you start, the weather has turned more people into, into spiritual beings than anything else in this world. And look, he talks about it. He says, he says, you turn to a living God. Who made the heavens and the earth and the sea? That's creation, right? He did good by giving you rain from heaven and a fruitful season. Yeah, God is over the weather. Now, is he miraculously manipulating it for your wedding? I don't know, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to go that far, but I think he's involved and over nature, And we understand that there has to be something over nature because we understand the power of nature. Something that powerful has to have something over it. Something doesn't come from nothing. So something came from what? God. And God is the one who's miraculous. Now in the last times, people will start denying. And we know that this is true and we live in these times. But understand this, in the last days, 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, and disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but then denying its power. In the end times, people will say, no, there is no other God but me. Yes, I am alive. Yes, I have life. Yes, there is big, massive things in this world, but they're all explainable through my mind and my experience. 
And though you have the appearance of God, though you have the image of God, though you have the likeness of God, though you have the miraculous all around you, life given to every human being, the wonders of this world being displayed, even in the weather patterns of this world, though we see God in all of nature, we will deny the existence of God. And what does God say about every one of these type of people? Avoid such people. Avoid such people. And let me say it to you here or listening today or online, don't be one of these. Don't be one of these people who deny God amongst the miraculous. You see, when we realize that God is behind it all, behind life, when God is behind creation, when God is behind the wonders and signs of this world, when we see the amazing power of our God, when we see the amazing greatness of our God, when we see the amazing goodness of our God, when we see this amazing God, then our worship becomes more amazing. You see, the more we're amazed by God, the more amazing worship becomes. And maybe you're here this morning, and this might be a bad morning to say this, but maybe you're here this morning because you somehow decided that even though it was raining, you were going to participate in worship. Why in the world would you do that? Because you serve an amazing God. Maybe this week you realize that you need God and you're in a place where you need something miraculous in your life and so you've got to get to as close to God as possible. And when you say, I need God, I know God, I've seen God, I love God, I've felt God, well then when you sing about that God, when you're reminded about the truths of that God and the power of scripture, when you fellowship when, with God being that basis, that becomes amazing worship in the sight of God. And our testimony springs out further. Listen, I, I remember when my grandmother passed away, and for a teenager, that was tough for me. I love my grandmother, and you've heard me tell stories before about that. I remember the worst thing about going through uh, that grieving period was trying to worship. Because I just loved God so much in those moments. And I knew his power and I knew his promises. And I knew the realities that the God I was singing to, when I was singing about heaven, that my grandmother was experiencing that heaven. When I was singing about that power and that love that my grandmother was experiencing firsthand, eye to eye, that power and that love. And it would just well up inside of me. I couldn't even get the words out anymore. But the worship maybe was more powerful than ever in my life. When you experience this amazing God, your worship becomes amazing. And if your worship has been dry, if you've not been very motivated to gather together with the saints, if you feel like your prayers have just been something that kind of fall off to the side and, and you haven't wanted to crack open your Bible, I want you to reconsider the miraculous in your life and see what God is actually doing every day and give him credit for it and then worship him because of it. And your worship will be Amazing. That's what miracles prove. The second thing miracles prove is Jesus is God and he alone can save. If you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 16, he alone is God, or excuse me, Jesus is God and he alone can save. In our journals, you're jumping over to page 94 and page 96. And I'm not going to read all of these verses other than to summarize it, but this is the story of the Philippian jailer. Paul and, and Barnabas had moved from town to town, and by, by Acts chapter 16, they had gone to Philippi, and they were experiencing kind of the same rhythm that they were experiencing in other towns, and they, they, had, uh, they had connected with 
Lydia got converted, and we're going to look at that in a few months. But in, in Acts chapter 16, Paul and Silas interacted with uh, a, servant, a servant girl that was disturbed by, by spirits, and it made this big kind of splash in Philippi, and they got arrested because of it, and they were thrown in jail. And the Philippian jailer, like all Roman Greek jailers, was responsible to keep the jailers in jail, the prisoners in jail. And if you didn't do that, you, you lost your life. Like, it, it was done. That was a, a high calling. So in verse 25, in Acts chapter 16, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, and the foundations of the prison were shaken. And you might say to yourself, naturalistically, earthquakes are earthquakes, that happens, but this is where the miraculous is demonstrated. Uh, and immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. So somehow, every single prisoner who was in chains, who was in the galleys, who was uh, chained up against the wall, every door that was there opened. It doesn't say that the building fall out, fell down and the, it fell on top of them and they all crawled out. It says that the earth shook and the chains unlocked and the doors opened, right? Kind of miraculous. Breaks every chain, breaks every chain, breaks every chain. That's what God's doing here in this moment. So he's the miracle worker, the chain breaker, and all of the prisoners were set free. Verse 27, when the jailer woke and saw the prisoner doors were open, he drew the sword and was about to kill himself. Obviously, he had failed in his duties because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Verse 28, but Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we are all here. They didn't leave. They stayed, which is it's, it's his own thought for another day. And the jailer called for the lights and he rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? He, fall, he fell down in appreciation? He fell down in gratitude? No, no, no. He fell down in fear. Why was he so afraid? Because he immediately attributed the miraculous earthquake and the breaking of chains to Paul and Silas in this case. And he turned to them and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Why would he ask Paul and Silas that question? Because Paul and Silas had spent month after month and day after day preaching the message of salvation through Jesus Christ. He knew who he had in jail. He knew what their message was. He knew why they were there. He had heard the stories of the cross. He had seen the miracles been, that had been claimed to have been taking place. And when he was witness to one of these miracles, he immediately said, your message is true. Jesus must be the Messiah. He must be the Savior. He must be God, and he alone can save. So he asked the question, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And as a matter of fact, it's open to everyone. Everyone in your whole household can believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house, and they took him that same hour, the night that they washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. And then they brought up to his house and set food before him, and they rejoiced along with his entire household that they, he had believed in God. This Philippian jailer came to realize that this was the moment of salvation. Why? Because he witnessed the miraculous. When you witness the miraculous, you have to understand, you have to understand that God is pointing to salvation through Jesus Christ. Christ alone. If he can shake the earth, 
he can save your soul. If he can control the weather, he can give you eternity in heaven. If he can create all things, he can save a sinner like you. And so Jesus is saying through the miraculous that we must all come to faith and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, not to dive in deep, deep to deep to too much theology here, but obviously there's some discussions here, not only about salvation and the miraculous, but about baptism and who gets baptized. And some people will point to this verse and say, well, if, if you want salvation in your home, then everyone has to be baptized, men, women, children, babies, grandparents, servants, or whatever. I don't believe that's what this passage is saying. This passage is, is pointing back to what we all know to be true, what's taught in other passages, that in order to believe in Jesus, you must be saved, and that's open to everyone in their household. So what happened here? Everybody in, in, in the Philippian jailer's household came to Christ. Every child believed in Christ. Every, every a slave believed in Christ. Every, every co-worker believed in Christ. Every grandparent believed in Christ. Every aunt, every cousin, everyone who was a part of this household believed in Christ. And they all got baptized, and what a party that was. And have you, have you been saved? Have you put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, but yet have not been baptized? Well, you're missing out on the party. You're missing out on, on what God does when we get saved. He says, what I want you to do now is get baptized. I want you to declare it to the world. The Philippian jailer literally is taking his life in his hands, right? He thought he was gone because he failed at his job. Now he's going to stand up with, to other Romans. And he's going to stand up and he's going to say, now I'm with one of these Christians. These are the same Christians that they're going to crucify by the hundreds and thousands. And the Philippian jailer is one of them. And so is his kids and so is his wife and so is his aunts and uncles, right? They're all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're all all in for the salvation of God. They all got baptized publicly. And I can't help but think that there's a couple of families that are connected with Branch who need to all get baptized. And you're sitting here going, but we should have done it years ago, and I can't believe it, I'm a little bit embarrassed. And I'm saying, don't, don't be embarrassed. Let's party. Let, let's get excited about this. Let's everyone get baptized. What a great privilege to be baptized the same, your ki- the same time your kids get baptized. What an awesome thing to do together as a family. And maybe there's a couple in here that you, you, you both haven't been baptized yet, and you're just kind of waiting. You're kind of putting it off. You're saying, I don't, I don't know it, when it's right. And they have a hot tub, and it's been kind of cold. And, and let's, let's go. Let's get baptized together. Enjoy the misery together, right? Let's, let's bond together. And, and if you've been saved and you haven't yet been baptized, I'm going to pause right here. I'm going to give you permission to get on your phone. Get on your phone right now. And I want you to go to branchlife.church. And I want you to go to the next step cards and hit, I'm ready to get baptized branchlife.church slash baptism and sign up right now and we're going to figure it out and maybe like I don't know when it doesn't matter we can do it anytime that works for you we're ready to do baptisms here at Branch Life Church the door is open we don't make it that complicated we just ask you to take the step of going online and raising your hand and saying hey let's do this thing because because I want to do it why why is this such a big deal listen if this earthquake was just an earthquake and if if there is no virgin birth And if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, and if there's nothing called the miraculous out there, without miracles, Jesus is dead, the church is a club, and the kingdom of God is a myth. If there are no such thing as miracles, we're wasting our time. Because Jesus is dead, the church is a club, and the kingdom of God is a myth. And all three of those things would be tragedies. But once we realize that the miraculous is is true, with miracles, Jesus is alive. The church is his body, and the kingdom of God is at hand. It totally changes the definition of reality in our lives. Jesus is alive, so I got to believe in him. I got to follow him. I got to obey him. I got to be baptized by him. He's in my life every every day. The church is not a club. 
We're not, a, we're not a club full of members. We don't get here to make ourselves feel better. We're here to be the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ. We are the body of Christ on earth. We're here to love God and love our neighbors. And we gotta get busy at doing what it is the church needs to do. We wanna make disciples who make disciples because the kingdom of God is at hand. I experience the presence of God and when he comes back again, God is gonna come and he's gonna literally be the son on earth. Why? Because miracles are real. There is no other faith other than biblical Christianity that depends on the miraculous. In all the other faiths, you can erase the miraculous and you can still make an argument for their faith, not for Christianity. There has to be a God above it all for it to be true. So have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If today's the day that you're ready to believe in Jesus, we would love for you to just in, the mo- in these quiet moments to pray a prayer of salvation, say, God, I'm sorry for my sin. I believe Jesus came, he died, he rose again for me, and today I want to accept the free gift of salvation. You can do it right now in this very moment. After the service, you can come and talk to the prayer team, or you can visit online if you want to do it in your own time. And if you're still working on getting baptized, today, right now, go to branchlife.church and fill out that baptism card and let us know that you're ready to get saved or, you can, or ready to get baptized, and you can put that on your card and we'll set it up. Lastly and quickly as we close, miracles prove this final thought, the church is in God's good and great hands. The church, not the building, right? Church is not a building. The church, not an organization, not a system. The church, not a worship service. The church, you and me, followers of Jesus Christ, are in God's good and great hands. In Acts chapter 20, There's a story about a young man who fell asleep in church. Turn turn with me then to uh, Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, I think it's pages 118 in your journal. Starting in verse 7, on the first day of the week, they were gathered together to break bread. That's Sunday. And Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. You got a problem with long sermons? You think he's getting like the 45, 46 minutes. It's going a little long this morning. Just praise God I'm not Paul, all right? For many reasons. But he was a long speaker. And he, he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered. And a young man, you just cannot blame Eutychus, was sitting at the window. He sank into a deep sleep. And Paul talked still longer, right? Yeah, if you fall asleep, I'm just going to keep going. Hopefully by osmosis, it's going to get in there, right? The word, the word of the Lord. He kept, he, Eutychus is sleeping at the window. Paul's talking, and being overcome by sleep, Eutychus fell down from the third story window outside and died. But Paul went down and bent over him, and taking him in his arms, he said, do not be alarmed, for life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten and conversed with them a long while until daybreak, he departed, and they took the youth away alive, and they were not a little comforted. If you're circling a word today in this passage, I want you to circle the word comforted. Why did this miracle take place? The Bible doesn't then say that millions of people came to Christ. 
The Bible doesn't say that a whole family got baptized. The Bible doesn't say that the word of God uh, crept into new parts of the world. That did happen in many other miracles. But in this miracle, what happened? The church was comforted. The church was comforted. And sometimes God does miracles in our lives simply to comfort us, to remind us of this fact that God is in charge and we are in God's good and great hands. I want to mention this, this point. This is the pillow. I've showed you this before. This is the pillow that I sleep in on every night, right? And, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of appropriateness to this. I want to thank the seven people that sent me shark videos this week. I appreciate your kindness in my life. Now, sharks are my greatest fear. Guess, guess where I sleep every night? I sleep next to these sharks, right? The thing that scares me the most. Let me just tell you the truth. Right now, I sleep like a baby. This is a comfortable pillow. I have no problem sleeping at night. When I get to bed at night, I am one of those guys that hits the, hit, my head hits the pillow. I turn once or twice, and I'm out, and I wake up in the morning. And I'm like, what happened, right? That's, that's kind of me, and I'm sleeping on my greatest fear, right? That's, that's not logical. Usually when we're scared of something, we're going to toss and turn, and we're going to be upset, and we're going to get, we're going to, we're worried about the next day's presentation. We're worried about the job, the job thing, the decision that we have to make. What are our kids doing? Are they going to be okay? How are we going to deal with this diagnosis that we've been given? And we get worried about stuff, and the worry affects our sleep. Amen? How many of us have been there where we felt ourselves tossing and turning in sleep because we were so anxious about the things that were happening in our lives? What if I could just lay my head on the pillow and just actually sleep and actually rest? The superpower of rejuvenation in my life could come alive. How do I do that? Well, I simply want to say this. Church, wake up so you can sleep. I want you to wake up so you can sleep. Don't sleep through sermons on Sunday morning. Don't sleep through the word of God. Don't sleep through the miraculous. Don't sleep through worship. That's where you gotta be awake. That's where you gotta be alive and well. That's where you gotta be drinking from the living water. And when you are awake and seeing the things of the Lord, or you are awake in your spiritual life, when you are awake in the vitalness of the fellowship of the church, when you are awake in the great hands of God, you can sleep like a baby at night because you know he's got you. He's got you taken care of. He is going to walk with you and for you. He's going to fight on your behalf. You, church, are in the good, great hands of God. So wake up and sleep good at night. Do what God wants you to do. And here's my reaction to miracles for us as believers of God. Number one, never, ever lose hope. There's nothing that God cannot do. I've, I've felt this in a very significant way over the last several weeks. Obviously, as I mentioned the last couple weeks, with my brother-in-law's diagnosis of cancer, with multiple, with over 30 spots in his brain of melanoma cancer. What, what, humanly speaking, what's going to happen? Humanly speaking, there's not a lot of hope. Maybe there's some drug mixtures out there that might do something. Maybe there's a trial that he can be a part of. Maybe there's, maybe there's something. But, but why, why do I have hope? Why am I never going to lose hope? Because there's nothing that God can't do. There's nothing that he can't take care of. And so I can, I can walk through my life no matter what comes, knowing that I'm in the great good hands of God. And some of you are here today and you need a miracle for something. You need the miraculous to happen and to overcome whatever obstacle it is. You've got something in your life. You've got an addiction that you've been trying to kick and you need that thing gone. You need, you need healing for something in some way. You need, inter, you, need, you need divine intervention. And I want you to tell you right now, do not give up hope. There's nothing that God cannot do. That's the miraculous one that we serve. But the second reality that I have is simply this. Always double down on discipleship. When I see God do the miraculous, I double down on my relationship with that God. 
I want to get closer to him. I want to know him more. I want to worship him more often. I want to be a part of, of partnering with him in my everyday life. Because here's the reality. Not everybody gets a miracle. Not everybody gets a miracle. And some people, some of us out there are going, I'd love to see God do something great. I'd love for him to lift my uh, addiction. I'd love for him to change my diagnosis. I'd love for him to talk to my boss and have him pay me double. That would be a great miracle. But God doesn't go around doing those things. By definition, miracles are exceptionally rare. And when we don't get a miracle, instead of getting mad that we don't get a miracle, remind yourself of this. When we don't get a miracle, that's God calling me to trust him more. We actually live in a day and age, the, the last days, where it's not as often that we see the actual miraculous. It's exceptionally rare. What God is calling us to is not to expect the miraculous. He's calling us to expect his presence. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I want you to know me. I want you to speak to me. I want you to hear from me through the word of God. I want you to build the church. I want you to make disciples. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And so you need to double down on a deeper relationship with God. My mom, who is somewhere in her 80s, is, is meeting with Maggie, who is somewhere in their 80s. And you know what they're doing together on a weekly basis? Discipleship. How do I know God more? How do I pray better? How do I read his word? How do I witness? How do I serve? How do I make disciples who make disciples and I want to go all in with my relationship with God? Would you, why do two, two 80-year-olds need to be studying about a deeper relationship with God? They're in their 80s. Shouldn't they have figured it out by now? No, they're doubling down on discipleship because this is a lifelong journey that all of us need to take. Do not abandon your relationship with God. Do not lay it on the side, but go all in because of relationships. We get miracles confused because of this. Miracles, by definition, are exceptionally rare. Yet God's providence is extraordinarily common. Not everything is a miracle. Miracles, by definition, are above nature. We're not going to see very many of them. But God is providing for us every day. Just a couple of weeks ago, my wife asked me what I wanted for my birthday. Here's what I told her. I wanted an assault bike, right? It's like an exercise bike on steroids. And you, you pump the, the handles and you do the feet thing and it's supposed to make you sweaty and all the big, powerful CrossFit people use these things. So I want to be one of them, right? So obviously I need the bike. So let's get the bike. How much are bikes? Oh, I don't know, 500 to $1,000. Ah, okay, well... And she goes, maybe I'll get you a bike. So actually for my birthday on April 9th, she gave me a printout of a bike that we might buy someday. <laughs> it was literally what I got. I was like, okay, cool. That's awesome. This week she was at Liberty Thrift and she walked in the, the thrift store doing some shopping for a thing that she had going on. And the guy rolling through the aisle of the thrift store has an assault bike. And he sets it down literally right next to her. And she goes, what's that? He goes, that's for sale. And she goes, how much? He goes, 45 bucks. And she says, does it work? He goes, I, I don't know. Can't get the screen on, but it might be the batteries. And she looked up real quick. The paper that she gave me on April 9th was the same make and the same model of that bike that got rolled out in front of her. 
On the paper, it was $5.99 to $7.99. In the store, it was $45. She said sold, and she brought it home. We put the batteries in. Works fine. I've worked out on it twice. It's now for sale for $500. (laughs) Let me tell you this. That is not a miracle. It's not. By definition, it's not a miracle. God did not supersede the laws of nature and magically make a bike appear. What God did was extraordinarily common providence. He provided And he is providing for you every single day in ways that you see and that you don't see. And how do we know that that's How do we know that 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 that's happening? Because we've seen God do the miraculous. The stuff within the laws of nature, simple. And he does it every single day. If you don't believe in miracles, you're wasting your time today. But if you believe in God, you're believing in someone who's extraordinarily present and is providing for you every moment of the day. Let's make our worship multiply. Dear God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you've done for us and what you continue to do. Lord, we thank you for miracles and we pray for miracles in our lives. We pray for miracles for my brother. And Lord, we know that we're not the miracle workers, but that you are. And so Lord, help us never to fall for false miracles or false prophets or false messages And we know that they're multiplied out there in this world. Help us never to fall for these false Zeuses and these false Hermes that are out there claiming to be God. Help us always only to look to the God of the Bible, to the truth of your word. And Lord, may we experience your exceptionally common grace every single day. We thank you for the way that you provide for us. And Lord, we pray that that through your provision, we would be able to be disciples of Jesus who make more disciples. Help us, God, to be a part of the miraculous rebirth of heart after heart after heart, of people who come to know Jesus on a regular basis. We thank you, God, that you are the God of miracles. In your precious name we pray, amen. Hey, thanks again for listening through this talk in our Problem of God series, and we hope that the discussion today helped answer some questions that you might have about faith and that you've taken a step further in your spiritual journey. Before you go, make sure to fill out your connection card at branchlife.church. We'd love to know that you joined us through this video session today. If you have any questions about what we covered, that's the place to ask those questions. We hope that you'll join us again next time, and thanks again for being a part of this series.